Hey y'all, it's Brie, and I'm so, so honored and excited to welcome Dr. Edward Penn for today's episode. He is a pediatric otolaryngologist who studied at the University of Kansas. He completed his pediatric otolaryngology fellowship at Lurie Children's Hospital, Northwestern University Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. He's originally from Kansas and enjoys spending time with his family. I personally collaborate with Dr. Penn on a regular basis with many patients that have pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. I can honestly tell you that he is one of the greats. He is one of those physicians that cares deeply for his patients and their families and is always providing care that is centered around them first. Dr. Penn is always a phone call, email, or text away, and I cannot begin to explain how much I appreciate that. Dr. Penn provides a holistic viewpoint on patients, and I really appreciate that as a speech-language pathologist. I know that I can call him, let him know a concern, and he's going to look at the complete child. He's going to look at them as a whole. He's going to consider the family values and their concerns and come up with a plan of care that supports this child in the best way they can. So today's episode, even though we're talking specifically on laryngomalacia, I hope you learn a lot about collaborating with an ENT. And we're going to go through today, what is laryngomalacia, the role of the ENT in providing treatment, what feeding and swallowing difficulties you may come across, and what compensatory strategies that an SLP might implement when we're working with a child with laryngomalacia while awaiting maturation or surgery. Um, We're also at the very end going to go through three case studies that hopefully will get you critically thinking through some patients you may have worked with in the past or are going to be getting in the future. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Edward Penn and let's get started. Welcome to The Feeding Pod. I'm Brie, your co-host. I'm a speech-language pathologist and certified lactation counselor. I work with infants and medically complex patients with PFDs in the home and outpatient settings. I enjoy building relationships with families and I'm a firm believer in providing interdisciplinary care. I also love providing mentorship and support to upcoming and new clinicians on pediatric feeding disorders. You can find more about me on my Instagram at pediatricfeedingslp or on my website, pediatricslplibrary.com. And I'm Olivia, co-host, registered dietitian nutritionist and certified lactation counselor. I work in a pediatric clinic where I get to divide my time between working as a CLC and an RDN for infants and children. I enjoy being able to help caregivers navigate through these difficult times that include the newborn phases all the way through the teenage years. I feel that my personal experience from having a newborn who's now a toddler and a child with special needs, including a feeding disorder, really come into play. We are here to bring you multidisciplinary, evidence-based information that is easily accessible about pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. We understand firsthand the importance of collaboration and how difficult it can be to navigate the ever-changing information on assessment and treatment of pediatric feeding disorders. The Feeding Pod is here to provide research, support, and a dash of comic relief. Now, let's dive right in. Disclaimer, all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This is intended to be educational in nature and does not replace the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment from a qualified healthcare provider. Well, hi, I want to first say thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about laryngomalacia. Um, my name is Eddie Penn. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist. I started out my training in residency, um, or excuse me, in medical school at the University of Kansas. So I'm a Kansas uh, Midwest guy. Um, did my training all through um, through 2006. I finished, uh, sorry, I'm going to back up there. Um, yeah. So I did my, my training, uh, my, my residency, my medical school um, residency, all at the University of Kansas. So I'm a Jayhawk, um, finished in 2011, and I did a pediatric otolaryngology fellowship in Chicago. And that's where I met my wife. 
So I finished my pediatric laryngology resident or fellowship, excuse me, in 2012. And my first job actually was at uh, Vanderbilt. So I was at uh, that center and it was great. And I had wonderful partners there. Uh, and then we actually met or I had met a co-fellow of mine. Um, his best friend was actually a pediatric laryngologist and he was here in Greenville. His name's Dr. Alexander, Dr. Nathan Alexander. So we met uh, via our wives and we came to Greenville and loved it. And um, not only because of the wonderful family community, but the medical community is amazing. Um, so um, we're here and we've been here for about four years almost now. So it's been wonderful. That's awesome. That's so great. I, my husband and I actually located here three years ago now. So I guess I wasn't that far behind you coming to, <laughs> coming to Greenville. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, we're so excited to have you here. I mean, just really, really excited to not just, you know, talk about laryngomalacia and how it impacts feeding, but also understand it from the otolaryngologist side. And I think that's really important for us. Like when we're moving forward, when we're making referrals, when we're providing treatment to understand all the different sides um, that kind of come into play. So just to kind of start out, you know, what, what is laryngomalacia? Uh, for some people, this might be a totally new term. Uh, so just kind of start from, from just what is it? Right. Well, um, I, I always, you know, when we, when we get referrals in and I'm seeing families in the office, you know, honestly, usually it's mom and mom is there with their little one. And um, a lot of the time, most of the, most of the um, initial visits are the mom saying, you know, my little one is just really noisy and we're in line at, at Walmart and people will look and my child's really noisy and they'll ask what's, what's wrong with your child. So we get a lot of referrals um, and I see a lot of uh, initial patients um, that are, you know, less than one years old that are noisy breathers. Uh, and moms have actually done a lot of the research. So they may be on a Facebook group or maybe, you know, Google researching and, and say, why is my child noisy? And interestingly, you know, one of the first things that comes up is laryngomalacia. So laryngomalacia is probably one of the most common causes of noisy breathing. And the noisy breathing usually is classified as, or, or we term it strider. And so there are different, different terms that describe noisy breathing. Strider is, is the most common. Um, and strider is usually when you breathe in versus breathing out. So that's one of the first questions to ask families and, and moms is, okay, is it louder breathing in or breathing out? Because to me, that can tell me right off the bat, is that a is that a noisy or is, is there an obstruction or is there a problem in the upper airway, which is, you know, vocal cords, superglottis, and a lot of families will say it's it's noisy and and it doesn't seem to bother a child and that's to me that's that makes me feel a little bit better because of the family has the feeling that well things are stable we're gaining weight we're doing well perfect you know that that's wonderful we can sort of continue to watch and sort of make sure this is laryngomalacia but the family's like well this is getting worse and we're getting louder and it's we're starting to have signs of working harder to breathe and to me that's that's a red flag but to get back to laryngomalacia and really strider, so a lot of families will come in and say, you know, my child has strider and they, they have the strider or they have strider and, and like, okay, you know, strider is, is a symptom or, or a sign and there's a lot of things that can cause strider, you know, again, laryngomalacia being the number one. Um, but when they come into the office, usually our, our diagnostic tool is a flexible uh, fiber optic laryngoscopy to sort of assess, hey, yes, this is laryngomalacia or not. And the way I usually describe laryngomalacia to families is, you know, think about um, your voice box and your, your larynx is made of cartilage. And one theory is that the cartilage is immature. So I like to use the analogy of, um, you think about, you know, my ear, yeah, my cart the cartilage in my ear, you know, my ear is like old crusty old man ear, right? So it's really hard and firm. And then, you know, we, with, with your child, you're, the cartilage of their ear is nice and soft and just beautiful, you know? So, I think about let them know that, hey, you know, there's a difference between, you know, an older mature cartilage versus immature cartilage. And when you take a deep breath in, I'm a really big hand person. So I love, I know you probably can't see this at home, but I love to use my hands. So if my hands are the larynx and I take a deep breath in, everything opens and we have a nice linear flow of air through the, through the superglottis, through the glottis. Whereas, you know, if you think about this immature cartilage, um, theory. When I take a deep breath in, instead of things staying open and staying rigid, I do this. <gasps> so my hands acting like the, 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 mm -hmm. the are sort of collapsing in. So a lot of times that gives families a little bit more like, oh, that makes sense. You know, if I have a more 
floppy, immature cartilage, when I breathe in, things are going to collapse in, you know, a little bit more. And that's why I'm hearing the strider sound. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other theory behind laryngomalacia is that the neuromuscular tone, tone to the voice box is just off. And, and it's just a normal process that we all have to go to go through. And some children have it more than the, more than others. Um, and then even a third theory is that, well, we were just born with the tissue surrounding the, the larynx. So the area of the glottic folds and the arytenoids are just more redundant and the area, area of the glottic folds are really tight and it sort of tethers the epiglottis back. So when we take, you know, a nice deep breath in things, um, collapse and we have prolapse into the glottis, which creates the, the, the strider. So regardless of sort of the theories, you know, I think the big thing that, that why I always counsel patients on is, you know, it's, it's this floppiness of the airway um, that contributes to strider. And there are a lot of other things that cause strider, but we need to make sure that, you know, okay, it is laryngomalacia. And once we diagnose this is laryngomalacia, then it's just mild, moderate, or severe, and we sort of decide treatment from there. But it is absolutely the most common cause for strider. Um, one of the mainstays, we can get into this a little bit later, but a lo- most of the children we see, 90% of them outgrow it, usually by the age of two years old. Although more recently, there's something known as occult laryngomalacia, where children have it or it persists, throughout the first five to six years. And it's it's more, um, they, we usually find it after a child continues to have obstructive sleep apnea after a tonsillectomy adenoidectomy. So it's more contributing to more of a sleep apnea picture later on in life. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, and I think like, you know, obviously you talked about one of the main, the main signs is that strider. And that's what I'll hear parents are like, it's a super high pitch, or it sounds like a whistle when they're breathing sometimes, um, or they'll notice it not just when they're sleeping, but when they're feeding as well. Uh, And that's really big, especially with infants. And that's something that us as SLPs will see is I have a little one that comes in and they're, you know, I'm observing them feed. And I notice after every couple sucks, swallow, breathe, sucks, swallow, and then they, and you notice like that sound right. that on that inhale where it's, it's high pitched and they're like trying to swallow, trying to breathe. Um, and a lot of that going on, then we notice the strider during, um, feedings as well. Um, right. and then like you had mentioned, you know, some of that, like if, if you're starting to have those feeding difficulties is weight gain becoming an issue, then those are reasons that we as SLPs really need to be pushing for that referral. Um, right, right, further. Right, right. I was going to ask too, something else that I notice that I see a lot of, um, with these, these infants in, um, you know, you can probably speak more to this is I find that reflux happens a lot at the same time. Um, but sometimes maybe I, I notice that like, oh, they don't have as much of the noisy breathing. They might have some of it, but they also tend to have a lot of reflux. Right, right. Absolutely. And there's, there's some really good, um, studies that sort of support that as well. I think the incidence in children with laryngomalacia is anywhere between 60 and 90% of children have some degree of reflux or, you know, I get into discussions with our pediatric GI doctors all the time about reflux. I'm like, okay, it's not reflux, it's laryngopharyngeal reflux. So we have the laryngeal, you know, issues and the laryngeal concerns about um, reflux coming into the larynx and, and affecting the nasopharynx. And, you know, they we sort of go back and forth on it and they're, uh-huh. they're a great resource to have, but there, there has always been this um, interesting um, debate between otolaryngologists and, and, P- and GI team members, but they're wonderful in, in that they can add another piece to, well, is this child an acid overproducer? Um, they can add a pH or an impedance probe to help us sort of determine, do we need to have an H2 blocker or do we need to add a PPI? So I, I, I do... Um, I do have a lot of patients that also need a, uh, we refer them to GI to sort of help us with a lot of the reflux, but you're exactly right. Um, to get back to laryngomalacia and, and reflux, um, I would say the majority of children that have moderate to severe symptoms of laryngomalacia um, are usually on reflux medication or usually I recommend reflux medication because when they get into that moderate range, it's not just, you know, cute, noisy breathing and we're just happy and gaining weight. When we sort of get to that moderate range, you start to see more signs of um, work of breathing. And that's one of the things I always talk to my colleagues about or to moms about it's, you know, the noisiness is great. All children are noisy, right? Um, Some to more more degree than others, but, you know, when that noisiness starts, it's a clue. And when that noisiness starts to get into more work of breathing, that's like, okay. So, uh, you know, the things that show me work of breathing, you know, nasal flaring, head bobbing, you know, suprasternal retractions, intercostal retractions, all those things tell me, okay, the child is using more 
energy and using the calories we're trying to feed to breathe rather than grow. And so like you were bringing up earlier, you know, the, the typical things we, where parents will sort of complain about or will, will notice as well, they're noisy, they may be noisy around their back more than upright. And oh yeah, you know, when we feed them or breastfeed them, they are squeaky and they are squeak, 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 squeak. And that suck, swallow, breathe coordination is completely off. And, you know, it's, I, I think about it as, okay, I just tried to get off my Peloton bike and I'm really, really tired and I'm trying to drink my water and somebody's pinching my nose shut. You know, it's, of course I'm going to be, you know, they're going to have difficulty with my suck, swallow, breathe as an adult. So as a child, um, as an infant, a lot of families will say, yeah, with the feeding and after feeding, even for 20 or 30 minutes after feeding, they have strider because they're just so worked up and, and, and they've been working so hard. Um, the other sort of instance where we, where we see a lot more strider that parents sort of notice is when they're sleeping. So in a sleep dependent state, you know, they notice, hey, we're, we're snoring. And I'm like, okay, is, is it princess snoring? Yeah. Or is this like old man, like this is, this is grandpa, you know, and, I, and they're like, and most of the, that's sort of interesting. So most of the families will say, oh yeah, you know, even though my child is three months old, I can hear them on the monitor breathing. And I'm like, oh, well, let's talk about that. You know, we need to talk about that a little bit more because mm -hmm. that's, that's not, that's not um, a, a normal thing that normal thing that we should, we should see in our children. So so all of that, like you're saying, there's a, there's a vast array of symptoms from mild to moderate to severe. But like you were saying earlier, one of the mainstays of treatment to, to help with you know, laryngeal sensitivity, laryngeal edema um, is reflux. Um, so reflux is a whole, whole other topic yes. in itself. A whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, but, but one of the one of the really interesting studies that that I think is out there related to laryngomalacia is that they have um, one sort of, it was like a landmark study where they looked at reflux in children with laryngomalacia. And they had a control, control group of children that were in sort of the moderate to severe laryngomalacia. And they followed them, followed them at one month, three months, and six months. Um, then they had a separate group that they put on reflux medication. And the first group was not on reflux medication. And they, again, followed them from one, one three, and six months. None of these children got operated on, but they did something called a feast test, right? So where not only are they assessing swallowing, but they they shoot this puff of air to test the laryngeal adductor response. So they want to see laryngeal sensitivity. Um, and so what they notice is that children that had laryngomalacia that were on reflux medication, their thresholds to create an adductor response were a lot lower. And the children that weren't on reflux medication, their laryngeal sensitivity uh, was just so diminished that their thresholds were so high. So they, they sort of those children fell into this, you know, they were penetrating on thinner liquids more, more often than not. So it was sort of this interesting study that sort of reconfirmed, you know, why we put children in that moderate to severe category on, on reflux medication. Yeah. Yeah. No, it definitely makes sense. And I, I mean, I've seen that firsthand. One of the cases I'm going to talk about later is, is one where that was really, really evident where the laryngomalacia was, you know, more on the mild side, but the reflux was severe enough that the, yeah. the sensation was very diminished um, at the first level. So now that we've kind of talked about some of those main signs and symptoms, you know, we're making the referral um, to an otolaryngologist. This is what we're concerned about. What can a family expect? Because um, I think it's important for us to know this as well of like, when they go to that appointment, what can they expect? How, how are they diagnosed? And kind of what does that process look like? I think what, what the family should expect um, when they come to see, you know, myself or my partner is that we um, we're part of a team with everybody else. So we're, we're a multidisciplinary team. And yes, you know, we may be a key in sort of helping with the procedural diagnostic or surgical aspect of it. But I think one of the things that I try to, that I try to um, discuss with my family sort of in the middle or towards the end of the visit is like, hey, we're part of a team. And this may include you know, our speech therapist, our pediatric GI team, our pediatric pulmonary team, um, your occupational therapy team, um, you know, all these things. So we're part of a team. And so I, I want them to feel, because I think that's the, the hardest thing for families is feeling like I'm alone and I, and this hasn't been seen before. And we're going to go in and, 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 you know, what's going to happen to my child, to my one month old or my two month old, you know, especially yeah, your first time mom, you know? So I think that's, that's a thing. And I always love to tell them like, let us help you. Like, let us share this, this worry with you and we'll get through this together. So I think that's, that's the first thing that I, I would love, I love to impart to families and um, is that we're part of a team. Um, but usually when, when families come in, um, one of the things that I, I let them know sort of early in the visit is that we're going to be performing a procedure today. And a lot of times that can be 
you know, especially if it's a, it's a first time family, um, you know, and they, you th they think procedure and they think, okay, my son just had a circumcision or my son or daughter just had a phrenotomy. Um, and, you know, it was like this. And, you know, so usually what I'll tell them is, you know, we, we do, uh, it's a small scope. It's about 2.7 millimeters. So a little bit bigger than the size of a spaghetti string. It goes into the front part of the nose and assesses, you know, anterior, mid, posterior, nasopharynx, superglottic, glottic structures. So it takes usually about 30 to 45 seconds to do. Um, but I think that once I sort of tell them that and walk them through, like, this is how it goes, I always let them know that I, I've had it done as well. So I have had it done by medical students who aren't very good at it. And I don't want it done every day. But what their child is going to go through. And then also my son, uh, who's four now, and he was about 18 months, he had the same procedure. And I was there and I was the muscle that had to hold or my, my wife was the muscle, excuse me, that had to hold him while, while he had it. So, so that we, that, that this is how we sort of diagnose it. Um, so we perform flexible fiber clearing endoscopy. And then once, once we complete that, um, usually I record every, every um, scope exam that sort of gets uploaded to their, their medical record. Um, and then we, we, sort of calm down. Okay. If the child needs to feed, that gives me a really good time to hear them feed after, you know, at the same time as well during the visit. And then we review the, the um, exam and we sort of talk about, you know, what normal looks like. And I have this great app um, that, that is free and it's the, it's from uh, uh, children at Cincinnati children's hospital. It's called the uh, pediatric, it's called a pediatric airway card. And so I love to use it because for me, it, it does a lot of the ENT stuff that we do when we do our bronchoscopies, but it also shows from an infant standpoint, what a normal infant larynx, glottis, subglottis, you know, a uh, carina, you know, distal trachea and carina looks like. And so to me, I think that's the biggest thing where the family can look at the video and I can pull up my phone and say, <laughs> you know, this is normal superglottic glottis and this is what your child looks like. And this is why it looks swollen. And they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense to me why they're floppy. That makes sense to me. So I think that really sort of solidifies, okay, laryngomalacia. And it sort of makes it a little bit more real rather than in the, in the old days when we didn't have the opportunity to photo document. And it was just, you know, maybe a laryngologist, you know, that was putting a scope in the nose and they're taking it out and say, well, you have laryngomalacia, you know, here's your reflux medication, you know. So there is, I, I will say there is a lot, probably the, the physical exam and the procedure part of it is 5% of the visit and 95% of it is education and you know, just, just what do we do um, if we start getting noisier and, and just education on what to, what to look for, what the next steps are. Um, and then usually the family, once they leave, if we have to order studies like a video swallow study or a fee study or a sleep study, um, those things are sort of done um, more urgently if we feel like that child needs to be seen sooner or in sort of a little bit more of a delayed fashion if they're doing well and gaining weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Now that's really helpful. Cause I think sometimes, uh, you know, I can speak from the SLP side. Sometimes we're the first person to, you know, observe right. a feeding or something. And so we're the first one to be like, Oh, do they, you know, do that all the time? Or right. do you notice um, that they have that strider or different things like that? And so I think it's nice when we are able, you know, to say like, Hey, you know, I think a referral to an otolaryngologist is appropriate to be prepared to say, this is what you can expect in a visit. Um, right. And this is, you know, what's going to on and you know I obviously collaborate with you and so I know I know the process and all of that with you and uh um, Dr. Alexander, but I think, you know, for some people, sometimes it is an initial consult and then they come back and do the procedure at a later time. I appreciate the one and done. And I think a lot of families do as well. Um, especially if they're coming in of just like, yeah, we're going to check it out and see what's going on. But, um, I think it's important to know what the procedure is like, because just as you mentioned, like for families, especially when it's an infant, whether it's their first child or their sixth child it's scary um and laryngomalacia is airway uh and that in and of itself is scary to parents to hear of like what do you mean their airway might be obstructed or what do you mean they're having trouble breathing that's really scary so um i think you know being able to break it down into those simple terms is really important so not only do they hear that coming from you when they get to the procedure but they also hear it from you know, us as the SLP first of like, Hey, here's what you can expect. And this is a small part of it, but it's something that's going to really help us figure out how we can best support you and your child. So right. awesome. Absolutely. So, all right, let's, you know, kind of move into now we have the diagnosis. What are some of the treatment options? I know you briefly mentioned before, most children do grow out of it by um, 24 months, but 
what if it's really severe? What if we're having a lot of difficulties? Um, or if it is on the more mild side, kind of what are the treatment options and, and how is that followed? Yeah. So usually if, if it's more in the, you know, based on the, on the, physical exam, the, the flexible laryngoscopy and their symptoms, you know, if they're gaining, so a, a typical mild, mild laryngitis would be family comes in, you know, noisy breathing, maybe at night, maybe with feeds, but no signs of increased work of breathing. They're, you know, in the 90th percentile, let's say mm -hmm. they take a bottle in, you know, a normal volume for their age and, and a bottle within, you know, 15 or less minutes. Uh, and they're doing well, and the family's saying, "Hey, we're 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 just want to confirm this." You know, a lot of times it's just, "Hey, you know, we confirm they have laryngomalacia," which, you know, go back to our point of how family, you know, um, the family's journey to us, um, you know, through this multidisciplinary team is like just having the diagnosis of yes, this is laryngomalacia. It's like, oh, okay, yes, okay, ready. You know, so that's that's really important. Um, so a lot of times, if they're in the mild category and they're gaining weight, we see them back maybe in a month maybe, you know, depending on how they're doing and, and if family needs more reassurance to, we may see them sooner. And then I'll see them back three months after that. And if, if things are continuing to improve over time, it's, Hey, you know, I'm glad you got to see Dr. Penn, you know, all yeah. these <laughs> so I'm sure you'll be happy not seeing me too. Um, but then there are also some children in that mild category that as they get older, maybe their inspiratory force gets a little bit stronger. Right. And so now, you know, initially they were small and, you know, and they're not, their inspiratory force isn't as great as, you know, they are when they're seven, eight, nine, 10 months, when they're starting to move and exert themselves, you may notice it more and then that more, that may uncover more symptoms, but just from a mild standpoint and children are seeming to progress normally and their symptoms are slowly improving. Um, usually it's just supportive care. Um, the children that, um, that worry me, all right, and that have fallen into this moderate to severe category are, you know, when I first walk into the room, if I see that they are scrawny and they don't have like thick thighs, it's like, oh, you know, what's good? At first, it's like, okay, what's going on? You know, like, what, tell me about feeding and, and, you know, the noisiness and work of breathing. But, um, you know, the children that fall into well failure to thrive, you know, they're having signs from their speech, from their um, SLPs of aspiration or, you know, tearing or coughing within liquids or just struggling with the sucks while I breathe. Um, those children in my mind automatically fall into a, a moderate category, right? Um, based on if it's a swallowing issue and a sucks while I breathe, then the two studies usually that are our mainstay of, of assessment are a video swallow study or a fees study. So thankfully, we have the we have a fees clinic. We have the capability of doing that um, as an outpatient in, in, our, in our hospital. Um, but there are some centers that don't have fees. And so they rely on video swell studies. And it's, I think they're, they're complementary to each other and they both give great information. Um, one of the things I like to keep in mind though, is that there's a, there's a campaign that's, that's national. It's called Images Gently. So we all, we don't want to, we don't want to give a child a giant dose of radiation for a, for a video swell study if they were premature, if they've had 20 x-rays before and now they're home. And you're just adding, you know, another, you know, yeah. fluoroscopic study or radiation in this first year of life when they've already had enough for, you know, four or five children. So I, I, when, when that's the case, I try to rely more on fees to, to look at that. And so we have um, um, our clinic and that sort of helps me not only look at structure, but function. Um, and also gives me an assessment of, you know, laryngeal edema, laryngeal sensitivity, pooling of secretions, penetration versus aspiration. Um, so that really, I think, helps us, helps us from the swallowing standpoint. The other things that worry me um, in, that, in that moderate to severe category are signs of obstructive sleep apnea. So we go back to, you know, hey, my, my two-year-old snores like Uncle Jimmy, you know, I don't have an Uncle Jimmy, but oh, I just yeah. my Uncle Jimmy. so um, those children, when they're having that work of breathing or they're snoring or there's apneas, um, that to me is not normal. And one other study we can get is, is called a sleep study. So that actually... Um, and probably in the last eight to 10 years or so has been able to be utilized in children, more children under one years old. Um, and even in premature and our NICU babies were able to get um, sleep studies as well. So that can tell us, okay, maybe they may be swallowing or getting by from a swallowing standpoint, but they may, their laryngomalacia may be affecting more of the sleep disorder breathing symptoms or they have obstructive sleep apnea at night. And that may push us to intervene um, more from a, from a surgical standpoint or not. Um, but we had talked about reflux earlier. I, I think the children that usually fall into moderate to severe laryngomalacia, 
and, and they have physical signs of, of laryngopharyngeal reflux on their exam or laryngeal edema on their exam, um, usually I will start them on a reflux medication. So um, a, a safe reflux medication on somebody under one years old is um, Pepsid. So that's a, a great medication. You can be once or twice daily uh, dosing. So famotidine, um, that usually is, is the mainstay. Um, interestingly, um, a PPI is also can be used in, in children. Um, so our, one of the more common ones we use in the GI world and in the PT&T world um, is omeprazole. So from an FDA standpoint, it interestingly is not, uh, there's no significant recommendation for children under one years old, although a lot of our patients have them on it. So if we are not getting good control with famotidine, a lot of times we'll loop in the GI team to sort of help us manage that and, and make sure we know it appropriately at, at the appropriate age. Um, Besides the reflux standpoint, um, the other thing from a fee standpoint or from a video swallow study standpoint, we, we, we find is, is, you know, changing the consistency of feeding, right? So if let's say the laryngomalacia isn't, isn't affecting any significant sleep issues, we're not having apnea, but it's just sort of a feeding issue. And a lot of times with reflux medication, and, and changing consistency to half nectar, nectar thickened or position, um, a lot of times that can get a lot of children by this really six month you know, period and, and sort of move yeah, it along. Definitely, and I think that's, you know, sometimes where our role comes in too, of like, can we just change the nipple size? Can we work on right. pacing? Can we change positioning and um, work from that point too, based right. on what the results are showing us? Um, and then, so I guess, you know, my follow-up question to that now, which I'm sure is the direction you're about to go in is, so if we do have some of that obstructive sleep side, you know, what, what are the options from there? So usually from, from the obstructive sleep uh, standpoint, it sort of depends on where they fall on, on our sleep apnea score, right? So there's a same, just like ring there's a mild, moderate, or severe. Um, when children, absolutely, when they fall into the severe category, then, you know, my discussion with the family as well, we need to start thinking about surgical options because the other option besides surgery, and I always, I always bring up a non-surgical option first because nobody wants their child to have surgery. Absolutely not. And, and as a dad, uh, first of, of two boys who have had surgery, uh, you know, I, I, it was necessary for them, but I, you know, nobody wants their child to undergo anesthesia. So, so I always try to start with, well, you know, there are options. We have a, a pediatric sleep medicine team who, who are amazing. And one of the options is positive pressure and positive pressure falls into the category of a CPAP, right? So CPAP traditionally what people think of as, okay, I'm, I'm going to use uncle Jimmy again. Again, I don't have yeah. <laughs> But, um, but, you know, it's a mass that goes over your nose and mouth and it pushes air in. So it pushes air in and it keeps a column of air in your nasal pharynx, oral cavity, glottis, and, and trachea, and it, it sort of stents your airway open. Um, now, before I had children, um, I would have honestly thought like that's, that absolutely is a reasonable thing. Oh, a furry to peed sleep medicine. So now that I, you know, I have a three and a four year old. So now that I have children, there's no way there. In, they would in house, I don't think either of my sons at less than one or even now would have been able to, to do that. You know, we're able to work our CPAP. I just don't think it's, it's a feasible thing, but you know, I, I do let families know it is an option. Um, there are some children, you know, to get, stay on the medical route, there are some children that have significant enough reflux that the reflux actually contributes to um, sleep apnea. So I've had children that have had mild laryngomalacia and are having these horrible reflux events at night. And that's causing these, you know, it's causing upper airway resistance. It's causing these apneas and pauses. So that's another way um, the PGI team can really help us out by, by determining, you know, what degree of that. Um, I've had several children that have had mild laryngomalacia and severe milk protein allergy or EOE. And they, once we treat that, they've gone, they've nearly cut, you know, their, their sleep apnea score from severe to nearly mild. So without surgery. So I think it is important, you know, from a multidisciplinary standpoint to make sure you're keeping, you know, keeping the medical evaluation or doing as much, being as much, uh, being as thorough as you can from the medical standpoint prior to, to discussing surgery. Right. Um, but the surgical option um, for children with laryngomalacia um, is, is um, when you discuss with family, it's, it's really, you know, you're talking about, okay, this is my, you know, like you said, first or sixth born, but this is my child and they're getting anesthesia. You know, they've never had anesthesia before. They're going to have a surgery. And a lot of times I think 
when people think about surgery, it's okay, there's going to be an excision somewhere, incision somewhere. And, you know, sort of my, my discussion with them, you know, includes that this is all done endoscopically. The procedure is called a superglottoplasty, and it, it involves using a microscope um, and a laryngoscope to assess the airway, to look at the rest of the airway, and then we, whether we use laser or whether we use micro scissors or micro instruments, um, we're making incisions to sort of open up the airway. Um, the other interesting thing that, that I always tell families is that, you know, not only are we focusing on the laryngomalacia, like, yes, the laryngomalacia is why we're here. It's why we're talking about surgery or, or medical treatment, but 20% of children can have other concomitant or synchronous airway lesions at the same time. So a big one can be subglottic stenosis, which is an airing right below the voice box. We see a lot of tracheomalacia that's also associated with laryngomalacia as well, or bronchomalacia. So it's really important that not only are we you know, assessing, you know, just a laryngomalacia and degree of obstruction while they're sleeping, but also the entire airway, you know, again, from the nose down to the carina where the carina branches to the left and right uh, bronchus, it's, it's, so we're not missing anything. Um, the other thing I, I will sort of mention too, when we talked about stertor is that I've had some children that, you know, where we have severe obstructive sleep apnea, they have moderate to severe laryngomalacia, they have a positive sleep study, we've treated the reflux, we're headed to surgery. And during every procedure, we always, again, look in both sides of the nasal cavity, because sometimes there can be issues with um, the nasal cavity could be more narrow. There's something called piriform aperture stenosis, which is the front part of your nose just didn't develop as well. So both or one side of your nasal cavities may be more narrow than the other or something called um, um, coinal atresia. We can have that unilateral or bilateral and, you know, children up until six months of age are obligate, you know, nasal breathers. So if one side of their nasal cavity is obstructed, um, you know, you absolutely can have obstructive sleep apnea and you can have this concomitant airway lesion with, with the ring So just important that when we talk with families, you know, we, we say we, we are assessing the entire airway and we're doing it in a sleep dependent state, you know, um, to sort of make sure we're not missing anything and make sure there's nothing else we're going to have to intervene on or watch as we get older. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point too, because airway, um, like in the feeding world, airway, we always talk about like airway trumps all. So if we do not have the airway um, managed from the entire point of view, then we're not going to have a lot of success with our feeding. Um, and I'll even see that in some kiddos that are older where they are just like chronic mouth breathers. And it turns out they had, you know, 90% of their airway closed off because of their adenoids. And so you get that fixed. And then it's like, oh, right. now we can focus on chewing because we can close our mouth for more than a second. Um, cause right. we can breathe through our nose now. And so, Absolutely. um, yeah. in that way, you know, in addition to, and so I think that's where, you know, also taking into consideration, there's so many other things that can impact airway. So while learning a right. is one, it's where it's really important to think about like what else could potentially be going on. And so if you are hearing more of the stertor than the strider, well, what could maybe be going on in the nasal cavity that's going to point right, us right. in that direction? So um, yeah, no, that's super, super helpful. And I think, you know, from, from the SLP standpoint for feeding and stuff, you know, we just have to know what severity level is it at? What are the concerns coming from the otolaryngologist? Because feeding is just one part of the puzzle and um, sleep is a really important side of it. And we also have to think about that when treatment is moving forward and being aware of what steps are going to be taken so that we also know how to then make modifications to help along the way. Right, right, absolutely. Um, so anything else to add before we kind of talk through a couple cases of, of things um, that have gone on? Another sort of topic discusses, yeah. you know, most of the time, um, if, if we're, let's say we're doing a superglottoplasty for um, obstructive sleep apnea for a child, um, majority of the time, like upwards of 90% of the time, you know, children will be significantly better afterwards. Um, but interestingly, they found that if you do another sleep study later on, their number won't go absolutely to to, to normal. So there is some degree of, of even after superglottoplasty, some children that still will remain noisy, but to me, it's okay. Is the work of breathing better? Are they more efficient feeders? Um, you know, is their airway maintained? So they're not going to have any, you know, significant postural issues or headache or, or neuromuscular issues later on. Um, so that's some children need revision surgery, but um, those, those children usually fall into, well, there's some underlying GI or underlying reflux issues that may not be you know, we didn't, didn't notice or didn't diagnose up front or um, the other sort of branches. Well, there may be an underlying um, neuromuscular issue that we still need to 
focus on. So um, one, one other thing to, to discuss like medical therapy and a complete looking at the child as a whole is there are some, some the minority of cases, so the majority of cases of laryngomalacia are, there's no family history of it. This is just, you know, they've had six children and this is the seventh and they just have it. Um, so the majority of the cases, you know, again, mom, dad, you know, grandparents, nobody has this, this finding in their family. But there are some families that we run into that, that the, uh, the family say, oh yeah, her sister had laryngomalacia. And this is how we knew that this, this one has, or, you know, great uncle Jimmy um, had, had, had some noisy breathing and maybe he had asthma when, you know, so, so there are some things that, that always, um, make me wonder, is there a familial thing going, going on that we need to look into that more, or is there a neuromuscular, um, underlying central nervous system issue? One, um, thing and or one, um, diagnosis that, that I have absolutely seen is something called a Chiari malformation where the, the cerebellum sort of sits a little bit lower. And so I talked to the family as well, that the cranial nerves get sort of squished as they're sitting in the, as they're sitting in the vertebral column. And so all those important nerves, like the, you know, the vagus and all these things that come out, um, affect laryngeal tone, affect your, 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 your tone while you're sleeping. It affects your laryngeal sensitivity. So there are absolutely are some children that have an underlying carry malformation and the way that we diagnose that is an MRI. But, um, I've had some children that once if, if, we were worried about that and we diagnose it. We refer them to a pediatric neurologist. And if that gets corrected or whatever, whether it's surgical or not, um, their sleep studies and their swallow studies get significantly better um, without surgery. So, um, so from a neuromuscular standpoint and, and a central nervous system standpoint, it's always something that, again, I'm part of a team. So it's, it's my job to make sure that I communicate with this, you know, the, the speech therapist that if, if they're seeing hypotonia issues or, you know, uh, you know, other postural things that, that aren't supporting, you know, just a paid, we just have a, air, a fixed airway problem and nothing else, um, that we communicate and make sure, Hey, we get an MRI, we get those things. So. Yeah, for sure. And that just goes, you know, into finding that like underlying reason why, because it's really hard to treat something if we don't figure out the why behind it. I say that all the time with feeding. I'm like, well, if I don't know why they're having the difficulties, how am I going to, you know, move forward with treatment? There's things I can do, but we're going to reach a point where nothing else is going to be able to happen. So like you said, you might take like, okay, here's our first step. If nothing changes, if things get worse, if things don't get better, or, you know, then you can say, all right, what is our next step from here and be able to kind of move forward from there. So yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think the, the last thing that, that, that um, always worries me about any of these children um, after surgery is their swallowing function, right? So um, my, my worry, especially if they already have a, 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 a preoperative swallow study where they're aspirating significantly, um, my worry is that, you know, okay, we're doing a procedure to open up the airway. Um, and, and potentially in one of the risks of surgery is that their swallowing could be worse afterwards. So after surgery, usually we have one of our inpatient speech therapists come by and do a bedside swallow to make sure, you know, they're, they're still swallowing. Hopefully their swallowing is improved or at least at least baseline. But one of the things I always tell families and one of the risks of it is, is well, we may, we may have to have, you know, when this is an, a rare instance, we may have to have not have anything by mouth, NPO for a little bit, you know, if, if, if we're still healing and we're still trying to figure out our larynx. And, and so that's sort of the other thing and, and why not everybody does this, but a lot of people, me included, will, will do a, a preoperative video swell study or a fee study sort of to assess baseline prior to a surgical intervention. Yeah. So. To figure out kind of then if something is going on after you kind of know where it is. I think that's important too, because sometimes with if we don't have, and I talk to families about this, I know we've, we've talked about this before is like, if there aren't any signs showing me that we're having difficulty with swallowing, I'm not going to put a child through a swallow study. Um, but I think sometimes doing that beforehand, then doing it after you have a comparison. So like their normal might not look what at what we would consider normal, but if they're not having any of those other difficulties, it at least gives you that baseline to compare to of like, oh, well, this was their normal. And so right. that's okay. Um, right. cause we all kind of have a range of, of normal. I'm sure my swallow probably doesn't look normal if I ever had it looked at, but it's, I, I am functioning and normal and right. I'm sick and <laughs> that sort of thing. So, right. um, yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. Um, okay. Well, have, I have one case I want to talk about. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. So I had a little one that came to see me, um, who was, uh, 10 months old at the time. And I had this little one come, um, he's 10 months old, had previously, um, been seen by a lactation consultant, 
um, when he was like nine months old. Um, and at the time it was kind of a weird story because he wasn't actually breastfeeding at all. He was only bottle feeding at this time and starting solids. And mom was just like, we're having trouble with solids. We're not doing great with the bottle. Um, she just said he was like a super messy feeder. Um, he, anything that had more than smooth consistency, he would just like gag or spit out. He would gag to the point he'd throw up sometimes. Um, he didn't want to swallow anything. And then um, she had also told me that before they had come to see me, she was like, oh, when we saw the lactation consultant, they said, you know, he had a tongue tie. Um, and so she just like immediately referred for release of that. They had the release and mom was like, you know, had gone on Google and all the things and was like fully convinced that's what was going on. Like he snores, he has feeding difficulties. It must be the tongue tie. Um, and so mom had actually come to me because thankfully the, um, pediatrician they saw, they were like, I still think you should go see a speech therapist. Like, I still think you should go. Mom was like, you know, whatever, I'll come see you. Um, the lactation consultant had kind of told mom, like, you know, now that it's released, it'll just take him a little bit. He'll get used to it and you'll be good to go. So mom comes to me and it's about two weeks post when he had had the release. And she's like, nothing's really changed. Um, he had the release. She's like, I feel like he stopped snoring for like a day, but then it just came right back. Um, he's still having difficulty on the bottle and then all those feeding issues that I had mentioned before. And so I kind of probed mom further. I'm like, what's the snoring like? Tell me about this. Um, it was very positional. If we were laid back all the way, it was a lot noisier. Um, when he was taking the bottle, it was a lot more of the <gasps> whistle going on. And so then there was just like a ton of spillage happening. And she had mentioned like, you know, he was really a totally fine feeder initially. Um, but I just feel like things started to get a little bit worse around like six, seven months. And so she attributed that to starting solid foods, but also his bottles weren't really going well. Mm -hmm. Um, I had asked her about, you know, have you tried a straw cup or anything yet? Um, he hadn't really. And so we actually tried one during the evaluation. He did okay, but he was coughing. Um, and I had, you know, kind of probed her about that. Like, Oh, do we, you know, does that happen? And she's like, Oh yeah, it, it happens on the bottle too. Um, and I kind of probed, has he ever been sick? And he'd actually been hospitalized for bronchiolitis before. And he's had like ongoing, um, just like respiratory infections off and on, but you know, she's attributing it to like, he's a toddler. Like we just get sick and, you know, I just think he has colds and his sister goes to school and I think she brings stuff home and all that kind of thing. So when I'm watching him feed, I'm immediately noticing on the bottle and with the straw, like we've got that noisy breathing. Um, and she's like, yeah, that just, he's just always noisy. Um, so my first thing is Okay. I, I'm thinking in my head, I, I think we maybe have laryngomalacia. Um, and so I kind of talked to her about like, you know, I think a referral to an ENT would be good. I'm, you know, a little bit concerned about some of the coughing, some of that noisy breathing, um, you know, counseling mom on that. And so that's when we got the referral to the um, ENT, which actually ended up being you. <laughs> and um, so he, he went to the appointment and in the meantime, we were just kind of working on like getting him comfortable with mealtimes. He's super aversive to everything. What can we do to at least pace him and make it a little bit easier for him? Um, we did start working on the straw and open cup a little more. We focused on the open cup initially because we could at least pace him a little bit more with it. The straw tends to be really fast for some kids. And for some kids too, like it is normal to cough when you first start the straw, start the straw cup. It's hard. It's hard to coordinate and hard to figure out. Um, and so part of it was, was him also being like, what am I doing? I don't know how to do this, but right. we're coughing on the bottle. We shouldn't be doing that. Right. Right. So he ended up going in. Um, and this, this was a mom that was very timid, like what's going to happen. What are they going to do? What, what's going to go on? What does this mean? And she, you know, asked lots and lots of questions. So kind of tried to prep her a little bit of like, you know, this is what's going to go on. This is what they're going to look at. And it's just really going to tell us like what direction we need to go into. Um, and so, um, he ended up getting diagnosed with laryngomalacia. Um, and you had mentioned like it was a more mild form of laryngomalacia, but he had really severe reflux. Um, and we had kind of talked about that. The study that you had mentioned of that is really probably what was more so contributing to him having a little bit of trouble swallowing because his pharynx was just like the sensation had to be very diminished, um, because he had such severe reflux. And so, um, you had started him on, 
um, omeprazole, I believe it was. Um, and so he started taking that and it was like, I mean, within eight weeks, we were a different kid. We were drinking from the straw and open cup fine. We were done with the bottle. We weren't coughing on any of the things. We were very quickly transitioning to doing um, chewable solids. And I mentioned this too, because I sometimes find that kids with more severe reflux don't want to eat chewable solids because it, mm -hmm. it impacts and just doesn't feel great. And they just right. want to drink and put, you know, swallow things that are super, super easy. And so for him too, I was like, I don't know, there might be reflux too, but um, the noisy breathing was one of the biggest signs of like, there's something airway going on with this kiddo. Right. And so, right. um, once that was resolved, I mean, like I said, I ended up seeing him eight times after that and we were on our way and, and doing really, really great. And so, um, he's just a great case. I like to share because if you don't truly find what that underlying reason for the difficulties are, nothing was going to change. I could have sat there and pushed forever on like, okay, come on, let's take more bites of food. Let's practice chewing. Let's, you know, let's drink from the straw. Let's do all these things. And he would have continued to just become more and more averse to mealtimes. Absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, also, um, you know, supports, um, you know, you're, you brought up a good point about, you know, and that's what I so have to tell families too about reflux medication. So when we start reflux medication, I make sure I tell them like, this is not going to like game change overnight. This is not, yeah. you're not going to have like a, um, an improvement overnight. Cause it, it, in, in theory, it does take about four to six weeks to see like to, to sort of improve your laryngeal sensitivity. So, um, so I do tell a lot of families like, Hey, you may not see a difference right on just, just stick with yeah. it, you know? So, and with that patient, absolutely. They, they had a, they had, um, one of the interesting things that, that I think mom also brought up too, and that patient was, you know, and I think we brought this up and during the she no way she, yeah, she brought it up. She's like, I just feel like I always want to like clear my throat for him. Like, <clears throat> like after he eats, yeah. and I do find that with a lot of families, they'll sort of mention that, like, you know, it just sounds like there's I'm stuff wet. back there and, yeah. and, wet, yeah. and I want to clear my throat for them. Or I just want to suction their nose, right? Bulb suction their nose and nothing comes out. And they still sound noisy and wet. I'm like, oh yeah. You know, so to me that, and that's not a hard and fast rule. But to me, it's that always goes to, Hey, they have decreased laryngeal sensitivity. They have even their own saliva or secretion just sitting back there. And since they can't sense it, they can't go <clears throat> and, and clear it or they can't cough and clear it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, and I do, I do feel like um, another point with that case was, was that, um, you know, I do see a lot of patients that come in initially that see me that may have, have not seen a feeding therapist or had any therapy at all. And, and the referral is for tongue or lip tie. Um, and, and they absolutely nine times out of 10 do have, you know, what looks like an ankyloglossia. Um, but when we start talking more about it, it's, you know, the families sometimes will say, or more, I feel like more often than not, we'll, we'll start going towards like, what's the breathing like? And they'll say, oh, they breathe horrible. You know, um, you know, they, their latch may be an issue here and there. We may have some difficulty, but I, you know, honestly, I'm more worried about the breathing. And then we started talking about breathing. I was like, well, I can, I can, we can, let's figure that out. I'm like, oh, you can do that too. We thought we were just here for the, for the tethered tissue. Yep. And I was like, no, we can, no, we, we need to figure out the swallowing thing. So that, sometimes that's, that's hard though, to bring up that conversation because I, I do feel like a lot of families that are referred for that, you know, they've been struggling for a long time. And, and we had, our oldest did have some, some colic and he probably had reflux. He wasn't on reflux medication. My oldest probably had laryngomalacia, but we didn't do anything about it. You know, of course, like the saying that accomplished children have no shoes, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so my, my son probably had that, but you know, for us, we went through some difficulty breastfeeding with my, you know, for, for, or my wife, sorry, went through some difficulty breastfeeding and I was there supporting, but it was tough and he was very colicky. And I, I feel like at that point, as brand new parents, somebody could have told us, you know, you clip his toenails three times a night and that will, that will fix the feeding issue. And I would have done it. Done I, it. I would have like, yeah, we're clipping his toenails every night. So, um, so I do feel like sometimes when the families are coming in, they're they're frustrated they're tired you know they have these feeding issues and and it, and to me it, it i know when they put all their eggs in this basket of oh it's just it's just at the tongue time we get this and we're gonna feed and we're gonna you know not snore anymore it's it really sometimes is tough to break that like let's let's take a step back and let's yeah. look at this little little person as a whole and like you know Tell me about the breathing, you know, and a sex wall of breathe. So, so I, I do feel like, um, like you said, that, that I remember that family in particular, and there was, there was a lot of, um, 
we talked a lot about the the release that they had and 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 i think they, that that family still went back to it a lot like well maybe it's we need a revision you know um, yeah yeah that's a big one all here too of like oh is it that and it's like well i think what we figured out is it it may not have ever been that um mm-hmm. and that we had these airway things and that's like i'm a big proponent on you know, if, if I am even concerned about potentially there is a restriction and I've kind of gone through all my things that I can think of, and I'm still concerned about it, that I really think an airway consult needs to happen before any major procedure, like before the frenulectomy is done. And I know people talk about it as being a very simple procedure, but it's not. Um, and I think it needs to be thought of a little bit more seriously for, for children. And oftentimes, there was an airway thing that just wasn't completely obvious to us. Um, And, you know, sometimes the airway stuff is, is pushed onto the tongue tie. Um, I know I've heard of that as well, but a lot of the research shows us that it can actually make obstructive sleep apnea worse. Um, But that's a conversation for another day. Um, So I want to hear about some of your cases though, things that have gone on. Yeah. So um, I think the case that, that sort of dovetails on what you were just discussing was um, a child who was um, seven months old and they referred to me for noisy breathing. And um, the mom um, was, uh, I think it was her second, it was a second child. And she comes in and says, you know, my, my, you know, uh, eight month old has noisy breathing. Uh, my, my pediatrician thinks it's floppy airway. Um, so it came in flat, you know, flappy airway. It's like, oh yeah, flappy airway. Okay. Um, and so we were sort of talking about things and, and, you know, as, as we get more into it, she was like, well, they, they sort of told me he's always had it since birth, like right at birth, we've always had it. Hasn't been a great feeder seems to, you know, sometimes we'll cough on feeds, but not always, but, you know, I have a three-year-old also when I'm trying to, you know, she's a single, single mother trying to do these things, um, you know, and so he's, he seems to be gaining weight, but they told me with, with this floppy airway that he'll outgrow it. So I'm just, you know, just watching it, but you know, there, there was this, there was this event. We had an event, like a choking event, and it just made me worried. So we, we did, the pediatrician and I both decided to, to um, see an ENT and I was like, okay, so we, we go through the history and it turns out when, when we really focus down on like the, the feeding, uh, um, she's like, yeah, he, um, it's taking him, you know, we're, we're still in the bottle. We're still in a, we're in a level two bottle. Um, I think they were at that point, they were taking, sorry, I know he was six months old, excuse me. Um, at that point they were taking starting um, soft foods, but she was worried because that choking event started with some baby foods, but she was like with a bottle, he's always taking longer than 45 minutes to take a bottle. And I was like, oh, well, how, how much does he take? And she went through, you know, it doesn't matter if it's one ounce or three ounces, it takes him more than 45 minutes. I'm like, well, why does he, why does that happen? And she's like, well, he just, he seems like he gets choked up and just can't breathe at the same time as feeding. And I was like, oh, well, that's, that's not normal. You know, so we, we went into that a little bit more. She also described, hey, he, he snores horribly at night. And as he's gotten older, it's gotten worse. And so that's the other thing as, as a, something that I look at in my history is I am a huge fan of mother's intuition. So moms know what's oh, required. Yeah. When moms say, this is getting worse and this terrifies me, that terrifies me that they're saying that. So we need to look into that. So that, that mom said, you know, something's wrong. Like, I, I feel like we're missing something. As we're getting older, things are getting worse, feeding and breathing. So um, you know, we perform flexible laryngoscopy and, um, with everything she was describing, I was, I was expecting to see like, you know, severe laryngomalacia in my mind. I'm like preparing to give this discussion of how the patient needs surgery. We may need to skip these tests and just go right to surgery. And, um, he had very mild laryngomalacia, which was really interesting. So to me, I was like, this doesn't make sense. So we talked about it. We reviewed the images, um, first and foremost, like we need to get figure out his feeding and why don't we get a sleep study too at the same time? And he, he definitely was somebody that worried me. So we had a, we actually had a video swallow study because he had been born full term, hadn't had any, any radiation or any issue or any um, imaging studies prior to that. Um, and his video swallow study, he was safe on honey consistency. He aspirated everything. Um, and um just everything that you could picture that was wrong with a, with a swallow study he, he had. Mm-hmm. Um, he had this, the sleep study like shortly thereafter and actually had like, like moderate to severe laryngomalacia or excuse me, moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea. So to me, I was like, why this doesn't make any sense? Like what's, what's going on with this child? Um, so after discussion with mom and these things happen pretty quickly, I was like, you know, I think the, the next step is, you know, we, we've already had him on reflux medication. 
we, we need to evaluate his airway because to me, you know, we have a child that has a very severe sleep apnea score. He's aspirating everything. You know, we can't really sustain our hydration, our caloric intake right. with any consistency. You know, he's, he's only six months old. So we, we did, um, we decided to go to the operating room and we said, well, I, I told him we possibly would, would do a super glottoplasty, but we really just need to figure out like what's, what's going on. And so, um, he was at that point, I think he was like close to seven months. Um, we did his laryngoscopy and, you know, when usually when we do our laryngoscopy, we have our laryngoscope set up, we have all our instruments, we're measuring things. Um, and so we have this, this instrument called a right angle probe. So it measures the height of the interretinoid space, right? And so the interretinoid notch or the posterior larynx um, has some cartilages and, and an interretinoid space that separates, you know, the opening of your esophagus to the opening of your airway. And so this right angle probe tells me, okay, how high is this wall? And so I'm resting it there and it just sort of sinks and it sinks and it sinks. And all of a sudden I'm down to like the third tracheal ring. So this child had a, had mild laryngomalacia and had a type three laryngeal cleft. So this actually went, had gone all the way down to his, you know, he didn't have his cricoid uh, cartilage posteriorly was absent. So it went down to his first tracheal ring. And it wasn't that his laryngomalacia was contributing to his obstructive sleep apnea. It was the um, redundant esophageal mucosa that was spilling into his airway posteriorly. So um, that changed everything, wow. everything, honestly. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and interestingly, in this whole workup, he also, uh, actually, he had seen a lactation consultant and did have, you know, have to have a tongue tie at the same time. But, but, but really, you know, his, his work of breathing, his feeding was due to this, this pretty significant laryngeal, uh, type three laryngeal cleft. So um, that to me sort of drove home to this point of, again, always listen to mom, yep. right? Um, if we have um, progression of symptoms, you know, and, and things that support, um, support um, obstructive sleep apnea or even laryngomalacia, it's, it's, it's important to assess everything to make sure there's not a synchronous airway lesion and that's contributing to all these symptoms as well. Um, and, and that, um, you know, it, it, it really, um, to think about the airway and even again, the child as a whole, you know, yeah. um, so that, that child ended up seeing after that, we sort of diagnosed that that child, unfortunately needed a G-tube, um, and so, so let his larynx heal a little bit. He had some laryngeal rest because his airway, he had been aspirating, you know, for six months and his, his lower airway was pretty, pretty rough looking. So we sort of had to get him a little bit older and healthier before we finally repaired him. But um, it, it's one of those things that not everything that is strider is laryngomalacia, right? There's yeah. so many things that can, get, that can um, contribute to contribute to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's where it's, you know, that's, that's why I will push for those like airway consults before kind of um, when I'm thinking about like tongue tie or, you know, even laryngomalacia, it's like, okay, well, let's still listen to all the signs and symptoms. Let's still listen to what's going on. And, you know, you can try some of those less invasive things, but if things are getting worse, especially like you said, if a parent tells me something's getting worse, yeah. then huge red flag, huge red flag right. that we need to figure out what's going on. Cause they're with the child all the time. They'll know, they will know. <laughs> right. Right. So, Absolutely. Right. Super interesting though. Um, and like you said, it's like, you know, a laryngomalacia is probably the, the most common cause of, or most common reason for strider, but it's not the only one. Um, right. Right. So looking at all of those other options as well. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, any other cases to share? Um, yeah. Sorry, uh, one more. So there is a, okay. um, uh, yeah, one more. Um, so there's a, a child that was referred for, for again, noisy breathing. Um, same thing, mom, you know, he's, moms are always right. So the mom said, been a noisy breather since birth. Feeding again takes, you know, longer than 30 minutes to bottle feed. Um, and what was interesting about this child is uh, he had um, pretty significant um, retrognathia. So his jaw was set back um, significantly as well. So we ended up, you know, scoping him. He had moderate laryngomalacia. We started him on reflux medication. Um, did have pretty extensive laryngeal edema. Um, as well. Um, so even after initiation of reflux um, treatment, we, we feased him to do his swallow eval and he was still pretty swollen. Um, but his sleep apnea score was um, pretty, was very significant. Um, it was about three times what it should be. So we, after discussion of things, you know, and I actually talked with our GI colleagues, you know, the decision was, well, we'll, we'll have to go to the operating room. And so we, we did his, his superglottoplasty and he had a, a pretty 
uneventful course other than his swelling was a little bit tenuous. So we had to thicken him to have nectar a little bit more, um, but he still had this jaw. So his, his surgery was overall difficult. And that when your jaws were more, more retrognathic, it, it allows you um, decreased visualization of the larynx in order to do all these things. But even through his surgery and everything, he always remained like really, really swollen. Like always his, his larynx always remained um, just edematous red. And so um, we ended up getting, you know, he, mom was overall happy. She's like, he's, he's doing better. He's, he's taking less time to feed. He's still really noisy. And so we waited, you know, about one or two months. He was on reflux medication. We got another sleep study and his sleep apnea was like, it had fixed it by like 5%. So a sleep apnea was still really severe. And so at that point we were again, looking at well, why is his larynx, you know, still red and swollen, you know, his jaw definitely plays a role with, with sleep apnea and base of tongue retraction. This is not a child. I'd recommend any type of tongue tie release on if even if you had one because yeah. of his base tongue. Um, but um, what, in, what ended up happening is we got more, we got GI more involved in the pedance probe and we found he had a milk protein um, allergy and that caused his larynx, his superglottis, his trachea. I mean, everything was just really inflamed. So once they targeted therapy to that, they, we did another sleep study and his sleep study numbers like came down to almost normal, even in the setting of this like very small jaw. So, um, sort of another, another, yeah. um, child that there are, you know, it's not just the larynx, you know, there's definitely other things that can affect your airway, especially in a little one. Um, and it's sometimes important to, to load the boat if we're not having that normal, post-op course with, with, with improved breathing and improved symptoms after yeah, absolutely. Always listen to family yeah always listen to the family yeah and I think that's just a testament to like if there are concerns with airway just getting that evaluation because if you don't get that initial referral to look at it and you see oh like laryngomalacia is mild why do we have such severe symptoms mm-hmm. then you know to look further and right, so just right. making that initial referral so that you can even just start the journey of figuring out what's right. going on because I mean, breathing is so, I mean, obviously important for everything, but from an, from a feeding therapist, like breathing trumps all. And if I do not have a child that has, that their airway is compromised in any way, I'm going to have a lot of trouble um, right. in, in all, all levels. Um, but especially in, in those infants. Um, but I'll even see it in some of my older kids too, where it's just so compromised. They have to work that much harder to be able to, to achieve the tasks, um, that we're trying to do, trying to do just like you talked about with like drinking from the straw or something like it can just be a lot harder. So they don't want to do it. Um, so yeah, well, I appreciate you so, so much for talking through this. And I mean, it was just so beneficial. Uh, I mean, I, continued to learn from you all the time. So I appreciate you sharing your, your knowledge and your expertise and your experiences, um, with everyone. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me really, really appreciate it. So I appreciate what you do for our patients as well. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in on today's episode. We hope you'll continue to follow us along as well as reach out and follow us on Instagram at the feeding pod. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll take a second to leave a review. If you want to get Ash's CEUs for listening, plus more courses and resources, visit pediatricslplibrary.com. Wherever you are, whoever you are, we hope you have a great day.